Chapter 32, Part 1 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ahikam Devadasan. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Lederhose. Translated by Gottlieb Friedrich Crotel, 1826-1907. Chapter 32. A Doctrinal Controversies and Attempts to Bring About a Union. Part 1. We must here revert to a conflict commenced at a former period against Melanchthon by Cordatus. We did not conceal the fact that his formula that good works are the condition without which we cannot be saved was a bold venture which could easily be misinterpreted when he used the form of expression in the leipzig interim that good works are necessary to salvation it was expressed indeed in a milder form but still admitted a bad interpretation it so came to pass that the aged amstorf published a work in fifteen fifty one in which he accuses george meyer melanchthon's friend in the most severe manner because he had adulterated the doctrine of justification by his proposition that good works are necessary to salvation. Meyer did not owe him an answer long. He confessed his adherence to the evangelical doctrine of justification, but at the same time adhered to his opinion that good works are necessary to salvation, because no one could obtain salvation by evil works or without good works. But now Meyer was attacked from every side and found it impossible to retain his position as general superintendent at Mansfeld any longer. His opinion was not opposed to the doctrine of justification, for he said that good works were necessary to salvation because they must necessarily be produced by faith and because all men were obliged to obey God. But the opposite side proved to him that the formula made use of by him might easily lead to misinterpretation and should not be used, even if it were only on account of the Catholics. Melanchthon, of whom we know that he did not approve of a form which might easily be misconstrued, advised Meyer to desist from further disputes, for he said, You are merely adding fire to the flames. Meyer was called to a professorship in Wittenberg in the autumn of the year 1552. Instead of following Melanchthon's advice and abstaining from his formula for the sake of peace, he continued to defend it. Melanchthon himself did not employ this formula any more, and at a later period expressed himself against it in a very decided manner, although he remarks in another place that against the antinomians we should always maintain that the beginning of new obedience is necessary, because it is a divine and unchangeable arrangement that a rational being must obey God. However, the most extravagant opponents did not suffer themselves to be pacified by all these things. Amstorff was so involved in these contradictions that he published a work during Melanchthon's lifetime with this title, that the proposition, good works are injurious to salvation, is a true, just, and Christian proposition, taught and preached by the saints, Paul, and Luther. If the champions had adhered to the word of God in the confession of the church, and had acted towards each other in a friendly spirit, intent upon the honor of God and the discovery of the truth, they would not have gone astray in this manner. Such a spirit should also have been manifested in the so-called synergistic controversy, which caused Melanchthon great trouble. It is certain that he was most decidedly opposed to the doctrines of the ancient heretic Pelagius, 
For he adhered to the truth expressed in the word of God, that the powers of man are so much corrupted by original sin that he must first be awakened by the Holy Ghost before he is able to make a beginning, and that he also needs the Holy Ghost as he progresses. He teaches that the powers of human nature are greatly affected and unfitted to do good, and he represents the merits of Christ as the only foundation of salvation. At the close of his life, in reply to the Bavarian Articles, he declares in the most positive manner, Sin and death cannot be removed by the free will of man, and man's will cannot begin inward obedience without the Son of God, without the Gospel, and without the Holy Ghost. Therefore, it cannot be assured or proved that he was a synergist, that is, that he taught that in the work of repentance, the natural will of man performs one part and grace the other. He was fully convinced that the grace of God alone accomplishes what is good in us, and that the will of man merely receives. The will of man could thus be active to a certain extent, but could not produce the new life. The actual synergistic controversy did not arise until after the Leipzig interim. In this, Melanchthon had said that in the work of repentance, man was not passive like a block or a statue. Flacius had repeatedly directed attention to this expression, but it was Amstorff who agitated this controversy towards the close of Melanchthon's life. But we will not enter upon a consideration of this, because the controversies concerning the freedom of the human will did not develop themselves until after the death of our reformer. As such differences and disputes arose on every side in the evangelical church, to its own injury and the joy of the Catholics, several princes, especially Morris and the Landgrave of Saxony, thought it necessary to bring about a meeting of the theologians in order that these controversies might be settled. The Osiandrian difficulties were to be disposed of first, as they shook the very foundation of the evangelical church. The meeting was to be held in Erfurt, June 1553, but Melanchthon did not expect any good from this, and freely declared his opinion that such conferences produced no good effects. As Gregory of Nazianzen had declared, that he had not seen any synods in his own day which did not cause greater dissension than existed before. He also said that there was no theologian now who was able to restrain the others, as Luther had done in former days, that they ought to adhere to the confession on account of the diet which should soon assemble. If the emperor should insist upon the interim, they should explain to him why they could not accept it. The landgrave also entertained the same views. This plan, which had been projected by Morris, was postponed by a terrible disaster which fell upon him. The margrave Albert, continued to disturb the public peace by predatory excursions, which were especially directed against the monasteries of Franconia. Morris, therefore, united with King Ferdinand and Duke Henry of Brunswick to suppress this disturber. But when Albert heard of this design, he endeavored to anticipate them and fell upon Lower Saxony. On 9th of July, 1553, a battle was fought at Sievershausen. Morris was victorious, but paid dearly for it, for he received a gunshot wound in the battle, which caused his death two days afterwards. His last words were, God will come. He was succeeded by his brother Augustus, who restored the Misnian lands in Thuringia and Franconia to the aged John Friedrich. He was a sincere man, devotedly attached to evangelical truth and enjoying the full confidence of his subjects. 
Already in the month of August, he came to Wittenberg, and Melanchthon rejoiced to hear the most encouraging promises from his own lips. He confirmed the foundations which had been assigned for the support of the university by his brother Morris. He also earnestly wished that the theologians were not affording a very edifying and commendable example by their continued disputes might become reconciled among themselves. This wish was shared by the pious Duke Christopher of Württemberg, and he proposed the conference of the ministers at Weimar, in order that they might discuss these points of difference. It was agreed upon to hold a synod at Nuremberg. We have already heard that Melanchthon dreaded such a conference, because he believed it would only make matters worse. On the 17th of April, he wrote to a friend, The court orders us to go to Nuremberg, whither, as they write to us, the Swabian and Hessian pastors will also come, although they have been warned by so many examples that synods and hypocritical unions are productive of great evils, yet they have ordered us to hold synods again. However, he also wrote to Mainburg, May 11th, Although the synod of Nuremberg, which I always objected to, will meet, I must nevertheless attend it. He went, accompanied by Forster and Camerarius, and reached Nuremberg May 20th, 1554. The Hessian delegate and the well-known Sladanus of Strasbourg arrived on the following day, and Passius and Salmuth of Leipzig on the 23rd of May. Although Melanchthon at first entertained the greatest fears because he expected these two violent champions, Gallus and Flacius, whom he called the two sons of Polyphemus, he now wrote to his son-in-law, Pusser, as early as May 23rd, Today we shall, with the help of God, deliberate in a friendly manner, and I hope that no disputes will arise among us. We shall not expect any other theologians, if they do not arrive here within three days. The princes wish the theologians to agree upon the answer to be given to the emperor at the next diet. In a declaration prepared by Melanchthon, the theologians frankly say, If his imperial majesty should wish us to adopt again the papal doctrine, which we condemn, and the interim also, we shall, by the grace of God, clearly and positively refuse to do so. They continue to say the Protestants should abide by the confession delivered in Augsburg in 1530, because it contains the only eternal agreement of the divine scriptures and the true Catholic Church of Christ. Also that the confession of Brentius and that of Saxony fully coincided with this. The theologians also expressed themselves against the errors of Schoenfeld and Osiander. Schoenfeld, like all fanatics of ancient and modern days, disregarded the written word of God and thought that God revealed himself to man without this. He also showed his perversion by other objections, which he raised against the evangelical church. They therefore say, therefore we unanimously reject the before-mentioned errors and all the lies of Schrankfeld. One of the greatest errors of Osiander is his declaration that man is not just on account of the obedience of Christ, but on account of the deity if it dwells in man. They maintain the evangelical doctrine against these Osiandrian heresies in a very conclusive manner. In speaking of ceremonies, they insist upon unity in doctrine and in the sacraments. They reject the Mass without communicants. They allow private confession, but no one is to be burdened by an enumeration of his sins. 
They wish holidays to be observed and require uniformity in this. They oppose the reintroduction of Latin hymns, of the garments used in the mass, of vestments, and other ceremonies, because it would give rise to new dissensions and ruptures. The authorities and sensible pastors would know how to make a distinction between essentials and non-essentials, and how to avoid all offense. Attention should be paid to studies, ordination, consistories, and visitations, all which matters had formerly been disregarded by the bishops. As the bishops are persecutors of the pure doctrine, ordination cannot possibly be given into their hands. The authorities are bound to see to it that the pure doctrine is preached in the churches and that the consistories would discharge their duties in punishing wise and maintaining discipline and harmony. Melanchthon was highly pleased with the harmony among the theologians at Nomburg. Yet he did not conceal the fact from himself that his opponents would also raise a great outcry against the resolutions of Nomburg. The theologians of Württemberg had only proceeded as far as Erfurt, for they had been expected for several days in Nomburg, but in vain. On the 28th of May, Melanchthon wrote to Strigel, If the Swabians do not arrive today, as I believe they will not, we shall adjourn tomorrow, God willing. He returned to Wittenberg as he had stated. Duke Christopher, however, was highly pleased with the resolutions of Nomburg. During Melanchthon's stay in Dresden, February 1555, where he was giving his opinion in regard to a visitation of the churches, the Diet of Augsburg had been opened on the 5th of February. The emperor had become completely disgusted with German affairs, particularly since the revolt of Morris, and he now left the direction of this Diet, promised in the Treaty of Passau to his brother Ferdinand. This diet witnessed many disputes, especially urged by the Pope's nuncio. But fortunately, Pope Julius III died about this time, and the nuncio was obliged to return to Rome. Now one principal difficulty was removed, and they at last, in the month of September 1555, agreed upon the religious peace of Augsburg, which was highly advantageous to the Protestants. For they not only obtained liberty of conscience and religion, but full civil equality with the Catholics, and remained in the possession of the ecclesiastical property which had been confiscated. But one unjust resolution was also carried, that if a Catholic sovereign should wish to become a Protestant at any future time, he should not indeed be personally molested on this account, but should forfeit his office and rank. Although the Protestants yielded very reluctantly, the decrees of the Diet were of the utmost value to them, for they secured a lasting peace, and they no longer needed to care for the condemnations of a general council. Melanchthon wrote, I look upon the peaceful conclusion of the Diet of Augsburg as one of the favors of God, and we must beseech the Son of God to continue to guide us in future. While the Evangelical Church was thus celebrating outward triumphs and securing a firm position for herself, enemies were raging in her own bosom, who undoubtedly retarded her development. They were contending about a doctrine which is as plainly founded in the word of God as it is of great comfort to the heart. It is the doctrine that not only the earthly elements of bread and wine, but also the true body and blood of Christ are distributed in the holy sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As a middle path between the doctrine of transubstantiation on the one hand and the one-sided doctrine of the Reformed, that we received nothing but bread and wine in memory of the Lord on the other. It was objectionable to the Catholics and the Reform. 
Luther has triumphantly vindicated this consoling doctrine in his writings. But now there arose another man with a doctrine somewhat different, which was adopted by many. This was the sagacious, learned, and pious John Calvin, who was born in the year 1509. The Lutherans had hitherto regarded him as belonging to their own party, especially since he had been teaching with Bucer and Capito in Strasbourg. When he had returned to Geneva in 1541, from which city he had been banished before, and had built up the evangelical church with great zeal, he wrote a confession in regard to the Lord's Supper in the year 1549. The Zurichers have formerly suspected him of being a Lutheran, but now all their doubts vanished, and they could call him their own, and harmony was completely restored between German and French Switzerland. But that which produced harmony in Switzerland caused dissensions in Germany, although not immediately. Here they had enough to dispute in regard to the so-called indifferent things, Ariafora and the heresies of Osiander. In the year 1552, a pastor in Hamburg named Joachim Westphal published a work in which he proved that the Reformed had given no less than eight and twenty explanations of the words of institution in the Lord's Supper, from the time of Zwingli to that of Calvin. In the following year, he published a work against Calvin entitled The True Faith in Regard to the Lord's Supper. This publication began to arouse the zeal of the Lutherans against Calvin and his friends, which was still more inflamed by one John von Lasco, who together with a band of French and Dutch Protestants had been banished from England by that severe Romanist, Queen Mary. He had confessed himself a follower of Calvin and therefore could not find a resting place for himself and his friends either in Denmark or Germany. They were denounced from the pulpits in every quarter. Calvin now published a work defending them and his doctrine. He declared that, according to his doctrine, the Lord's Supper was no empty ceremony. Even though he did not believe in a participation of the body and blood of Christ in and under the bread and wine, Westfall and John Timan, pastor in Bremen, arrayed themselves against Calvin, who, assisted by Bollinger of Zurich and Lasco, soon published a refutation. Most of the cities of Lower Saxony sided with Westfall. The fire spread on every side, and Schnepp of Jena, Alber in Mecklenburg, and Eitzen in Hamburg attacked Calvin in the most violent manner, who finally maintained an utter silence. End of chapter 32, part 1